So as, I, as, as we start this uh, particular study, as we continue in this series, No Other Gospel, a study in Galatians, uh, I want to just pause uh, for a word of prayer, if you don't mind. Not my habit, but something I think is important. Father, I thank you for bringing us into this particular text of Scripture today. I pray, Father, that as I have studied it and I've wrestled with it and I have tried to think it through in my own life, Lord, I pray that I would communicate it in such a way that would exalt you in the lives of others. Lord, I pray that uh, as only you can, that you would guide the words of my mouth and and the rabbit trails I'm prone to go on. Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have been studying, we're, we're quite a ways away into the book of Galatians, and last week we studied Galatians 1 through 7. And uh, what we uh, did is we engaged in a number of different aspects. But I thought verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, uh, we're going to look at 6 and 7 as well, but 4 and 5 were those verses that may, maybe, maybe you've come across them in your Bible reading and you just stopped. And you're like, wait a minute. This seems really, really important. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I mean, it's the gospel in a nutshell, uh, much like other nutshell gospels that are throughout Scripture. But I will say we're, we're dealing with God's plan. God's plan for the ages past, from eternity past, it will, uh, and it will be fulfilled. Every detail will be fulfilled until the conclusion of His plan, which is for all eternity, for His people to be in His presence, enjoying Him forever. We wrestled with that sometime this week. Uh, pastors met in a... First three days of this week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, work, work days. Spent a lot of time talking all about gospel, all about life and ministry and church ministry. And, and we came across that point where we're supposed to enjoy God. And uh, I hope that's maybe what grabs your heart today, is that God is meant to be enjoyed. Here we see that in his plan, in the fullness of time, what did he do? God sent forth his son. Now, there's a lot in that, those few words. He sent forth his son, and we know he had to be born of a woman, born under the law. We covered that last week. But why did God send forth his son? To redeem those who were under the law. God sent his son to redeem, but praise God, he didn't just redeem us. He redeemed us, he adopted us. And we, we focused on that idea, maybe not as in-depth as, as we would like, but this idea of adoption. I've never been adopted by anybody other than God. I do not understand physical adoption as many in this room might. But I'm so thankful that God saw fit to send forth his son to redeem me and adopt me. And I hope that's your heartbeat this morning as we get into this text of Scripture. He goes on to say that, and because you are his son, God sent forth his, the spirit of his son. Right, So God sent forth His Son, and now we see that He sent the Holy Spirit. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about the Holy Spirit being the Spirit of the Father. 
And so this is all these different verses help us uh, wrestle with this idea of the Trinity. But we see that we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the one sending. The Son came, and because of we came to faith in His Son, in His death, burial, and resurrection, then God said, all those who have come to a genuine faith in Christ are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. I hope you never get over the indwelling of the Spirit in your life. The world does not know what you know. They cannot experience what you experience. They cannot have fulfillment like you will have fulfillment. You will not, they will not experience the abundance of God's blessings that you will experience because you have the Spirit of God in your hearts. And in that Spirit, that Spirit allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, a very endearing term, one that speaks of true relationship. Therefore, you are no longer slaves, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. And we see this progression that we've studied, and Paul's hit on it. We, we were once slaves, but then we became sons. And because we're genuine, legitimate children of God, we are heirs through what Christ has done. Remember, there's a false gospel that Paul's trying to confront He leaves room for understanding that there are many false gospels potentially out there. An anathema, a God's curse of condemnation for eternity for anyone who preaches another gospel or another Christ. What we're seeing in this text that we're going to get into today is uh, a continuation of Paul's heart being revealed. What he's trying to, what he wants for the, excuse me, what he wants for the Galatians, and he wants them to understand that they are children of God and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. So this is, I want to just walk through just a few slides, not just chapter 4, but even before that. We've been dealing with this justification by faith. I'm just going to walk through a few slides, kind of catching us up into the, the heartbeat of what Paul is, is, has been talking about. We see that our, in this text that we've been studying, our justification by faith in Jesus has given us a new identity as children of God. Our new identity as children of God is evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We just covered that. So as we get into verses 8 through 11, we're just dealing with four verses today. I want us to focus on this. The presence of the Holy Spirit grants us immediate intimacy with God. Because we are genuine believers, because we are children of God, because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, it's an evidence of our faith. And if you've never experienced this, then, then it's okay to question your faith. It's okay to question. Go to the Scripture. See the truth. Because the truth is that God has done all this to bring people to Himself in right relationship. And when you are in that right relationship, there's a certain level of experiential truth when you go from being a child of Satan to a child of God. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is, I think, the number one example of that taking place in your life. But we're going to focus on this idea of intimacy today. The presence of the Holy Spirit grants us immediate intimacy with God. Is there anything more intimate than the Holy Spirit indwelling us, knowing our every thought, our every intent, our our every motive, our our every word, our every action, There is quite a bit of intimacy going on between God and a believer all the time. So I want us to understand that no other gospel grants us this intimacy that we have with God. 
false gospels that are out there will promise all kinds of things, but they will never deliver in this. And it will never deliver in many other aspects of the true gospel. All right? But no other gospel grants an intimacy with God. And I, I ask you to consider, when you think about being intimate in an intimate relationship with God, is that a good feeling? All right? If we're supposed to love God and enjoy Him forever, if we're supposed to... Uh, be living out our faith, when, when, we, when we know, cognitively know that he knows every thought, word, action, and deed, is it joy that comes to our heart when we think about intimacy with God? I'll be using the marriage relationship as we go through this illustration. Uh, I will say even in one sense, uh, th- we can talk about other close relationships. There's intimate uh, relationships that are not husband and wife that are totally godly. But the ultimate example of intimate relationship would be, a physical relationship would be between husband and wife. So let's consider three absolutes regarding our intimacy with God, right? Just three from four verses, all right? We'll see. Let's just read through the text. Verses 8 through 11 says, But then, building upon what has just happened in verse 7, that we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit and that we are no longer slaves, we're sons who are now heirs. He says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, Paul says, lest I have labored for you in vain. That is where I hope to be able to talk clearly about the heart of Paul when we get to verse 11. So I'm just letting you know that's, there's a lot, a lot behind those words. But before we get there, let's talk about the first absolute. Ignorance of God will never lead to intimacy with God. And now this might be like, yeah, duh, Pastor, that's that's pretty obvious. You know, if I don't know who God is, how can I be in an intimate relationship with him? Exactly. But that's what Paul is conveying. He says here in this first verse, he says, but then indeed when you did not know God. And so he's saying it. Basically, every person that he is writing to that is reading this letter or hearing this letter read, And for everyone in this room, myself included, it's the idea there was a point in time where we did not know God. Now, there's levels of knowing God, and I will say in this text, uh, we we can see when you did not know. This word know, uh, it's the, the idea of a genuine lack of knowledge about who God is. Do you know who God is this morning? Many of us in this room could say, I've known God, and I've heard this, I've known God's my whole life, and they mean it because they've never been a time where they could have the cognitive knowledge of, a, of even a child that, that would say they, they, the parents always talked about God. They always went to church, and they always knew about God. And I'm asking you to consider who's the audience that Paul is writing to here. He's writing to a church which is made up of both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Their ethnic backgrounds are, are coming into play, and, 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 and when we can understand this from the standpoint of a, of a Gentile believer, right? There was a time when you didn't know God. And they were like, yeah, I didn't know God because I was too busy worshiping stones and statues and, and wood and, and all these other things, stars, moons, all, all, all that stuff. But what about when we're engaged in this text and understand the Jewish people were hearing this? 
Well, then indeed, when you did not know God, what, they would be those people who say, what do you mean? I grew up knowing, I'd known God my whole life. But Paul is writing, and he said, there was a genuine lack of knowledge about who God is. I want you to rewind. Well, let me think about that. Yeah, rewind to the time of Jesus from, from Paul's perspective here. And remembering that Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day, saying they did not understand who God is. They did not know God. And they said, well, we're sons of Abraham. He was like, no, you're sons of the devil. And they were pretty upset at him, as you could imagine. And it struck me as we were reading in the, the passage in Jeremiah, the, the scripture reading today, that, that we see other evidences of, of the people of God not knowing who Jesus is. He says in verse 8 of chapter 2, uh, Jeremiah 2, 8, says, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. But it says right here in Jeremiah's day, those who handled the law did not know me. So this, this, rea- this is a reality. When you did not go, there was a time, Paul is saying, when you did not know God, and it is true both for the Gentiles and for the Jewish uh, people in the church. They, they had a serious, genuine lack of understanding of who God is. Then he says, you serve those which by nature are not God. So Gentiles and Jews... Again, they have their own ways of serving. This idea of serve is the idea, it relates to bondage and false worship. Right? You served. We're in the context of prior to Christ, you had these, these, this wrong view of God to the point where you were even uh, serving or worshiping those which are by nature not gods. And, and so, once again, let's think about it. From the Gentiles, no problem. You know, wood, stone, all those things, stars, all those things we're worshiping. But what about the Jews? What about the Jewish Christians? How can he say that they serve by nature which are not gods? If we do not have a genuine knowledge of who God is, we are worshiping something in his place. So for the Jews, it probably would have been a worship of self, a worship of tradition, of ritual, of whatever it might be. But they were not worshiping the true God of whom Jesus represented perfectly as he came into this world and as he, as he lived, died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, right? The idea of serve relates to bondage. Now, we know the bondage part because of what's going to happen next, but we see that there was this point in time, and we can talk about this reality, this absolute, that no one can have an intimate relationship with God if they do not know him. The second absolute is similar, but it's more on the positive side. It says intimacy with God will always, there's the absolute, never and always, don't ever use those things unless you're talking about God, right? Intimacy with God will always lead to faithfulness to God. And we're going to spend most of our time on this absolute, uh, but we are, in, again, in this idea of intimacy with God. And so where am I drawing that from? Well, we see in the text, he says, well, first of all, he says, but now, in contrast to what was just shared, he says, then you didn't know God and you worshiped things that weren't really gods, right? He says, but now, after you have known God, or rather are known by him. It's one thought brought, in, brought to clarity in two steps. He says, after you have known God, this word known 
is the idea of Adam knew Eve, his wife. It is that context of intimate relationship. And so when we think about after we have known God, it would have been insane to think we could have a close relationship. Remember, the Jews were scandalized by Jesus' use of the word father. Talk about, this, and talk about himself as son. That, that was not the way he referred to the, relation, the relationship they had with God. But Jesus could. And as followers of Christ, as believers in Christ, we are sons. And we are also able to use this term as children of God. He says, but now after you have known God in an intimate way. Then he, he says, listen, let's just clarify what I really mean by this. Yes, you're, you're known by God. Which I would have said I've known God my whole life. Uh, I would have been wrong until I didn't know him until I was in college. You know, most of you, most of you know my testimony, right? But now he brings a clarifying thought in here. Or rather, are known by God. Um, I, 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 it pales to consider a, a, an illustration that would be equal to a, a, a slave who has become a, a son who has been adopted, right, to God and, and some earthly relationship around here. But think about... Do you, do you know somebody? You ever met somebody famous? Uh, I'm trying to think. Of, I've met some famous generals. I've met some, uh, I met a, an actor one time, right? I don't need to go into details on that one. Uh, I didn't care. Everybody was like bowing at his feet. I was just like, I hate your show. But anyway, um, I mean, it was just totally immoral. And I was just like, yeah. You kind of look like I thought you'd look like, you know. I got to be careful, obviously. That was just like, that was, that was really wrong of me to even say that. But I'm just saying there's knowing and there's knowing. I could say I know someone. Um, who's the most famous person that anyone has met? Anybody ever met the president? Yeah? Yeah, which one? You met President Bush face-to-face, all right? The closest I ever got to him was his hand out a window. All right. But hey, so you know President Bush. Uh, nah, but does President Bush know you? If I went to President Bush, would I say, hey, do you know? And he'd be like, uh, no. Right? Sorry. <laughs> but at least you got to meet him. I'm saying that's, that's really cool. Right? We, I'm just trying to bring this into context for us. No, no. There's a difference of knowing God. And, and thankfully, these people, Paul's writing to, and and I would say us in this room, we have a knowledge of God. It's a right knowledge. But let's bring it in total clarity. The intimate relationship we have with him is because he knows us. He has made a choice to send his son. He has made a choice to send the spirit into our hearts. He has made a choice to know us because without him knowing us, we would never know him. After you have known God, or rather are known by God. It's talking about the intimate relationship between God and you and me. Intimacy with God is based on His knowledge. His knowledge of you, certainly, but I'm going to say His knowledge of your conversion, your genuine conversion of faith. Because when you get into the next text, Paul asks the question. It's the central question of this section, and, and really will hopefully keep you occupied from this point forward as, as we think through the rest of it. How is it that you turn again? And so we're going to look at this word, you turn, there. Uh, How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? 
That word turn has the idea of, it's the same word that is used to talk about the conversion of someone to faith, right? From unbelief to belief. It's a, it's a turning of, it's a, it's a recognition of. And, and, and Paul is bringing, he's using that. I'm not saying he's talking about conversion here, but I'm saying that's the word that's used so we can understand. How is it that you turn again? We're going to talk about that word in a minute. You're turning again. In other words, you've turned once. How is it that you're turning again? You've turned once from darkness to light. You've turned from, from, from uh, just the, 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 the sin of your life to, to holiness. You've turned to, the, the, you've turned to God who has adopted you, right? He's a, how is it that you turn again? He also says that you're going to desire again. Both those have this word again there. There's, there's some aspect of their past living out in their presence. He says, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? And so all these words, I'm going to try and keep it simple here if I can. I personally believe the most important words, I don't have it highlighted here, is how is it? He starts off this little, this, this question, how is it? I think we could flesh out this, the, the meaning of this by saying, how is it possible? How is it conceivable? How is it that, that you could turn again? It's almost like Paul's, he's, he's wrestling with, I, I can't fathom that you are doing what I see you doing. He says, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly uh, elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Let me just continue on with my notes. Intimacy with God has suffered due to the pursuit of personal desires. All right? I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back because I need this. Intimacy with God is based on his knowledge of your conversion. It really happened. What happened to the Galatians has happened to many within this room. I would have to believe there are some within this room have not converted to faith in Christ. They have not turned from what they're trusting in to turn to who Jesus is. I'm just, I just have to believe either you in the room, someone online, someone watching this 10 years on video, whatever it might be, that there's this intimacy with God is based on this knowledge that we have come to faith. And if we have come to faith, right, how is it that we can once that, that what we once turned from, we could turn back to. How could our desires that we said are wrong, how can we turn back to them? This is real stuff. This is real stuff Paul's dealing with. He sees it being lived out in the Galatian church. He says, how is it that you're turning again? You turned the right way once. Don't turn back. Your desire again, you change your desires don't turn back because what you turned from was weak and beggarly. It was powerless and full of just poverty. It offered nothing. Do you see your former life before Christ as being weak and beggarly? Do, do you remember the vanity of life prior to your time in Christ? Do you grieve I, I know we've been forgiven for our sins, and I get it. But there are a few sins in my past that because of my flesh, because of who I, I still grieve over them. 
I think about it, and I am instantly brought to tears that I would be capable. And yet I know I've been forgiven. And it's in that moment where I think we understand the gospel. What I deserved, I did not get. What I did not deserve is what I received, and I received forgiveness. But I, I still think the relationship here between what's going on, what Paul's trying to convey is that our former life before Christ was without power and brought us nothing but poverty. Why would we ever go back to it? To which you desire again to be in bondage. Not only are we saying that it's powerless and, with a, and, and poverty, it's, it's also something that's going to bring us back into slavery. So uh, one of the illustrations I thought of, I thought about all kinds of food we could use, but, you know, I, I am a milkaholic as well as a chocoholic as well as other things. But I have tempered my drink, my consumption of milk to the point now where rather than drinking a gallon for dinner, we actually just had the gallon on the table. My brothers and I, we, we would go through a gallon at dinner. Um, now that all the little ones have moved out and married and all that stuff, we have milk that actually, I never knew this before, but milk can go sour. I, I never experienced that, no. It's the idea here of how is it that you can turn again and we can beggarly. How, how could, if you know it's sour, why are you drinking it? It's milk. No, it's spoiled milk. It doesn't, it doesn't offer you what it's supposed to offer you. It's nasty. It's disgusting. Yeah, but I love milk. Gross. That's ludicrous. That's crazy. How, how is it that you can do that? Paul is saying, that's what Paul is saying. Like, how can you go back to what's worthless, meaningless? Now, again, I ask you to consider, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. We can understand the, 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 the Gentile aspect of this. Yeah, certainly not worshiping. I'm not going to go back to stones and rocks and all that stuff. But the context here, here really is turning back to the, the ways of the Jewish faith, of, of actually exercising some of the things that, that they did. Remember, Paul's saying, don't, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to, you don't need to follow the law. You, you don't need to do that anymore. He would, he would allow that perspective to fall under to the weak and beggarly elements. Not that the law was evil, but that the law was not intended to bring one into right relationship with God. It was only to point out their need of a right relationship with God. He says, listen, don't go back there. Don't drink the milk. Don't eat the poison. Don't do the things that, you wouldn't, that you've never wanted to do. Uh, that you know are, are, are worthless now. So intimacy with God has suffered due to the pursuit of personal desires. There's, certain, there's this aspect of, of desire going on here. The Galatians show us what not to do. If we are reading this text and applying it to life, we understand that we're not supposed to be like the Galatians. We must stay intimate with God or else we drift away from Him. Have you ever heard of someone who has drifted from the Lord? We call them backsliders. We call them uh, people who have known the truth, but they're not living the truth. Um, I, I answer a number of emails, usually not in the right timing. But I will say that in one email, I, I con conversing to a, a solid Christian brother, and I poured out my heart. 
that my sole desire as a pastor of this church, and I think I represent the pastors, the other pastors of the church, with the idea, I just want people to know the truth and live the truth. It doesn't get more simple than that. We must stay intimate with God or else we drift away from Him. That intimacy, that intimate relationship we have with God is something that can happen. It can drift. This is where I go. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed. It's not give heed. It's not just give heed. It's give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. There's that word. There's a possibility that we are able to backslide, that we're able to drift. We're not talking about loss of salvation, but we're certainly talking about a life that's not honoring the Lord. He says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Can we just pause there? Are you in a position of, re- of neglecting this great salvation, this one that Paul is saying we can be joyous about, this one that we're saying that we can have, we have this intimacy with God, but somehow we're letting it, we're neglecting it, we're drifting. What happens in a marriage when the husband and wife drift apart? Can you say that they're intimate? No. No. There are, there's a mask. They're going through the motions. Paul is saying to the Galatians, the author of Hebrews is saying it here. He says, which is at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness to the reality of this, this, this genuine faith. He says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. He's like, listen, how can we escape this? If we got? The message, don't neglect your salvation. Don't neglect the intimacy that has been given to you, believers. So there's, there's Hebrews uh, 1. And so this is building off this absolute number 2. Intimacy with God will always lead to faithfulness to God. And, and I, I, so I, I think if we're, if we're going to consider this intimate relationship we have, if we are continually uh, practicing and, and, and uh, this, uh, buttressing, building this intimacy with God by being in His Word, by, by uh, prayer, by fellowship of believers, but focusing on what we have in the gospel, all this joy. If we're in the, in the constant process of being intimate, it'll always lead us to faithfulness. I would ask in a marriage, how does one end up in divorce? I should say, how do two end up in divorce? Well, someone's been unfaithful, maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe in any number of ways, but, but there's some aspect of faithfulness has not been happening. So intimacy with God, this is also a, a duh, will always lead to faithfulness to God. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We see it again in Jeremiah 2 in the, ver- in the, the 13th verse, uh, again, from our reading. For my people have committed two evils. Notice the two evils that they committed. They have forsaken me. If you forsake your spouse, you have left them. You have, you have not just drifted, you have... You have done, you have destroyed intimacy, right? For my people have committed two evils, God says, for they have forsaken me, me, the fountain of living water. Sounds a lot like what Paul's saying in Galatians. 
and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Cisterns are supposed to hold water. But when we're left unto ourselves, we will always go the direction. If we're not keeping an intimate relationship with God, we will, we will somehow make excuses. We will do those things that make us, our, what, what, we will become God. We, our desires will, 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 uh, will come before the desires of God. And we will build our own cisterns. And they will not hold water. They will leak. I think the author, I think Jeremiah, as he's writing, and Paul, as he's writing, is the idea, how can this be? These people knew the living God. They knew, and yet they drifted. This leads us to absolute number three. Lack of intimacy with God is evidence of either ignorance or unfaithfulness. So nobody, nobody is ever going to be intimate with God if they don't know who he is. I think that has implications for our witnessing and for our sharing of our faith, but it has a whole lot more, right? It, but it, it, so think of all those people, and I'll ask you to think about them specifically in a minute, that they, they just don't know God. So how can they be intimate? Second, the absolute is, is if someone is intimate with God, it will always, if, if they will remain Intimate, it will always lead to faithfulness. But here, absolute number three, if there is a genuine lack of intimacy with God, it's evidence of either ignorance or unfaithfulness. Ignorance is point number one, absolute number one. Unfaithfulness is absolute number two. It's one or the other. And we see this as we go into the last two verses. Paul is saying here, you are doing this, Galatians. You are observing days and months and seasons and years. When you're reading it in the English and you don't understand the context or anything, it's kind of like, yeah, so big deal. We celebrate Christmas and Easter and New Year's and birthdays and anniversaries and all these things. God has put in his word to remember certain days like the Passover and, and, uh, and all these other uh, observances of, of feasts and festivals and all these things and to, re- to commemorate and to remember the great acts of God in the past. So what's the problem, Paul? You're saying this like this is a bad thing. And he's saying it's a bad thing. You are observing days and months and seasons and years. These are some of the things that you turned from. You're going back to it. The idea here would be all those festivals that were being lived out in, in function, but not in faith. Oh, hey, I, I, uh, look, I looked at the calendar today. Uh, Passover's coming. I need to go get a lamb. Uh, I, got, I got a little bit of time. Yeah, let me go get that lamb, and uh, let me go sacrifice it, and then I'll, I'll meet you for, for coffee later. Right? It's the idea of treating it lightly, of treating it with no significance. He's saying, listen, there was some aspect of their observance of days and months and seasons and years that was wrong. It was part of the, of the, the past things that they had turned from. And he's saying, That's, this is not a good thing. And this is why he says, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul has a passion for the gospel, for him to live as Christ and to die as gain. Right? Galatians 2.20, right? Going back there. I'm, I'm going to, because I, I, I'm doing this off the cuff, so if I, if I quote it, I'll mess it up. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I did not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He's saying, listen, I'm afraid for you because something is happening, Galatians. Your, your desires are, are, are not being honed on the stone of God's faithfulness to you. It is knowledge of you. You've, you're losing your sense of intimacy with God. You, you've allowed the world to eclipse you know, the view of God in your life and your, your relationship. And he's saying, listen, you went back to this observance of the very days you've turned from. And Paul says, I'm afraid for you. This is having consequences in their life. Wrong actions have wrong consequences, have bad consequences, right? I'm afraid for you. There's this possibility, that word lest there. He says, I'm afraid for you. There's a possibility. I have labored for you in vain. Well, what labor was Paul doing? Well, he, he's labored in the gospel. Throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, when Paul's writing, he's, he's commending those who have labored with him in the gospel, the conveying of the truth of what God has done on man's behalf so that we might live unto God. And here we see, I'm afraid for you because lack of intimacy with God, which is evidenced by your going back to those things, is either evidence of ignorance. I'm concerned that my labor has been in vain because You say you believe, but you've never believed. It was never genuine. Or he's saying that that it's evidence of unfaithfulness. You have believed, but, but your life is not being lived the way that God wants you to live it. He says, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored in vain. Paul's not worried about his labor being for for naught. He's worried about his labor being expelled, and he thought one thing, but the, the eternal destiny or the, or the current living of the current destiny of unbelievers or, or, the, or the life glorifying aspect of believers is at risk. It's, it's, it's in the air. It's, it's, is it possible? How is it possible? So as we close with a few questions, I, I want to just share something. Over the past few weeks, a word has come into my vocabulary. It's been there before, but it has new meanings. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but it is a word that keeps showing up and showing up and showing up. And it's the word absurd. It's the word absurd. First time it was used, it was just describing something. But as I have encountered it over and over again, it's absurd that we would turn from what we have. And yet, we're prone to wander, are we not? Prone to leave the one we love? I'm afraid for us as a church that somehow as a church body, those who have labored into our lives, that we will become complacent in our faith and we will not seek to be intimate with God. And true intimacy with any person is allowing them to see everything. I I counsel young married or um, well young married couples, but even before they get married, be intimate in your finances. 
Be intimate in your struggles. In other words, don't leave anything unexposed. Expose everything. And we are exposed. We are intimate with God. He sees all things. I want us to be a church. I, my desire is that we be a church, like Paul is saying, that, that we, are in, we are laboring for intimacy with God. And that means loving others with a Christ-like love. We talked about a lot of that last week. That means letting your yes be yes and your no be no in relationships and we be willing to pay the cost, whatever it might be. As we think about this, let me just ask you a question. Do you sense a lack of intimacy with God? As you've sat here today, are you, are you one of those people that would say, I don't really know God. I, don't, I really don't have a true understanding of Him. That was me as a young child, certainly. But I think even as a young adult, I came to my senses that I, I lacked this intimacy, this transparency before God. Do you sense the presence of intimacy with God, right? So there's it's one way, I mean, one way of looking at it, no intimacy or, or intimacy. If there's no intimacy, you need to come to faith, and, and we can talk more about what that means. But do you sense the presence of intimacy with God? I hope there are people in here saying, yes, I love God, and I'm enjoying Him, and my life is being lived out by loving God and loving my fellow man and, and doing all the things. And yes, I have this intimacy with God. And there are others that would say, I have a genuine intimacy with God that I would caution. And I would say, how are you determining the presence of intimacy with God? How, what are we supposed to measure our life by? What are we supposed to be, what is supposed to be true? How are you determining the presence of God? So I came up with a bunch of things, and we're closing, I promise. Are you relying upon externals? Think about the Galatians. Paul was basically pointing out, you're going through the motions. You're going to start observing days, weeks, months, years, you know, times of seasons, all these things. Are, 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 he says, are, how are you determining the presence of intimacy with God? Are you relying upon the externals? Do you think your very presence in a church gathering means that God is good with you? That's not out of the ordinary thought. I believed it for about 18 years of my life, right? So maybe you're believing that today. Somehow the externals by going through the motions when, when the Lord's Supper is, is exercised. Oh, yeah, I took the wafer. I took the cracker, right? That means I'm good with God, right? That, that's someone who's depending upon the externals to, to know that they're intimate with God. What about trusting in consensus? Well, I belong to the right group, right? It's, it's not, I'm a Baptist, but I'm this Baptist. I'm this Baptist, right? I, I, I'm with all the people who got it right. Careful with that. Because truth is not, way, uh, is not guaranteed just because there's a consensus. He said that the priests of God and those that were handling the law, they do not know me. Consensus is not a guarantee of intimacy. Are you engaged in prayer? The first two were negative. The second two were positive. Are you engaged in prayer, genuine prayer to God? That's a sign of intimacy. When you can, I remember being saved, brand new believer, walking down the, the sidewalk at my college, massive numbers of people all walking around me, and I was in a deep conversation with God. And I, I, was, I was a brand new believer, and I was in this intimate discussion. I've never had this discussion with God. The only way I knew to come to God was to go to a certain place at a certain time. And I realized I could talk to God whenever, wherever. And I'm just telling you, prayer is a beautiful outworking of our intimacy with God. 
Are you enlivened by the gospel? Does, does, does the good news make you smile? Does it bring joy to your heart? Does it, does it do something within you so that you might actually grieve the ignorance of those around you? I have such a passion for the gospel. I'm grieved at the ignorance of those around me. Paul was grieving the Galatians and those who were turning. He's like, no, I gave my life, years, months, whatever it was for you. I don't want it to be in vain. I'm grieving the ignorance of those uh, around you, right? Do you desire to be faithful regardless of the cost? Does living for your faith in Christ mean that you stand out in such a way where unbelievers would say, there's something different about that guy. I don't agree with him, but I respect him. Our desires need to be faithful desires to honoring God. Do you know the peace of God which transcends all understanding? That's one evidence. We could go on and on and on. But we're told, be anxious for nothing. But all things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I think the peace of God comes in the lives of believers in various ways. Sometimes it's through dealing with cancer. When you realize nothing I can do and the grace of God just invades your life and and you have this peace and nobody can understand it and the only excuse you can give is my Father knows me. He has adopted me. He has given me this peace because of my faith in his son. These are just some ways we can wrestle with this idea of intimacy. I'd ask you to, when you leave this place, wrestle with, are you in an intimate relationship with God? Where does it need strengthening? So our justification by faith in Jesus has given us a new identity as children of God. Our new identity as children of God is evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit grants us immediate intimacy with God. No other gospel grants intimacy with God like our gospel, like the one presented in the Bible. We have considered three absolutes regarding our intimacy with God. Are you absolutely sure about your intimacy with God? I think it's a question you ought to consider today. One, you need to come to faith. Two, you realize there's something you're hiding. You're seeking to hide. He knows all things, right? You're seeking to hide. Maybe, maybe that needs to be exposed and confessed and repented from so that you can enjoy the genuine joys of intimacy with God, which is poured out upon all those whom God loves. Father, I thank you for uh, this this passage of Scripture, and I pray, Father, that you would do a work in our hearts to seek to have this intimacy, to be known of you in such a way where we are confident in our relationship with you. We are not shaken. 
by the things around us. Father, I pray that for anyone who is struggling with anything that's been discussed today, that they would turn to your word. They would see your love through the person and work of Jesus Christ. They would see their sin for what it is. It's an offense to you. But Lord, may they see your merciful grace that is extended to all those who call out in faith. And Lord, once they respond in faith, Lord, we do pray that you would work in lives to mature us in that faith and to understand that intimacy takes effort. We need to be in relation with you daily, personally, joyfully. Thank you for your great love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.